Welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. I am Dr. Blake Mumford, Education and Research Fellow at the Institute. And I am Dr. Annalise Willems. I'm a GP, Medical Educator and Research Fellow at the Skin Health Institute. Blake and I are your co-hosts today. As a reminder for our GP listeners, Spot Diagnosis has been accredited with RACGP and ACRAM. There is one CBD point per episode, so approximately 9 to 10 points per season. All you need to do is subscribe to the podcast, listen to all the episodes, and fill in a brief evaluation form on spotdiagnosis.org.au. Repeat, spotdiagnosis.org.au. This episode is part two of our series on connective tissue diseases, and we'll be focusing on dermatomyositis and systemic sclerosis. Our two guest speakers are back. Associate Professor Mandana Nikpour is a rheumatologist at St. Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne, with a special interest in clinical care and research in connective tissue diseases. Associate Professor Alvin Chong is a consultant dermatologist working at St. Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne, and at the Skin Health Institute as the head of the Transplant Dermatology Clinic. Welcome back, Mandy and Alvin. Good to be back with you. Very delighted to be here again. Dermatomyositis is one of my favorite diseases, and it may or may not be one of my online gaming usernames. Mandy, what is dermatomyositis? Well, Blake, dermatomyositis, or DM, is a type of idiopathic inflammatory myopathy that commonly presents with proximal muscle weakness and a characteristic rash on the face and hands. Interstitial lung disease occurs in 10% of people with DM and typically in association with certain autoantibodies that we'll talk about shortly. Elevated serum CK and a characteristic perimyxial inflammatory infiltrate on muscle biopsy are hallmarks of this condition. And the majority of patients have either myositis-specific or myositis-associated antibodies which we'll also talk about shortly. Mandy, can you tell us a little more about the classical clinical features of dermatomyositis? The classical features of dermatomyositis are proximal muscle weakness, heliotropic rash and Gotrans papules on knuckles, which Alvin will speak to shortly, lung crackles of interstitial lung disease, bulbar and respiratory muscle weakness, as well as myocarditis may sometimes be seen in dermatomyositis. The progressive proximal muscle weakness can often present in interesting ways. For example, struggling to hang out the washing or difficulty getting up out of a chair. Do patients sometimes present late because they think it's just a part of getting older? Absolutely. There is often a delay in people presenting because they may attribute their symptoms to fatigue and in some cases getting older. Also, contrary to popular belief, myositis presents mostly as progressive muscle weakness rather than muscle pain, and painful conditions tend to present earlier. Do we mainly see dermatomyositis in older patients? Not always. We can see dermatomyositis across a broad range of age groups, from young people to older individuals. As we'll talk about shortly, there are different associations to be aware of in these different age groups. There are also certain autoantibodies that are associated with dermatomyositis in younger people. Is there a predilection for a particular gender? 
As with most connective tissue diseases, dermatomyositis occurs more commonly in women with a ratio of around three to one. How is dermatomyositis diagnosed? Well, the diagnosis of dermatomyositis rests on the constellation of clinical features, elevated muscle enzymes, in particular CK, myositis antibodies, electromyography, muscle imaging with MRI, muscle and skin biopsy. Of course, we don't necessarily need to perform all these investigations in every patient in order to make the diagnosis. However, even in seemingly clear cases of dermatomyositis, a muscle biopsy performed by a surgeon preferably targeted using MRI, is preferred to confirm the diagnosis and to exclude differential diagnoses such as inclusion body myositis. A baseline muscle biopsy can also serve as a useful point of reference for comparison with future muscle biopsies if these are performed. Are the histological features of the muscle biopsy pathognomonic? Well, if an affected segment of muscle is biopsied, then you should see perimysial inflammation, which is characteristic of dermatomyositis and is often sufficient to confirm the diagnosis. Alvin, over to you. The cutaneous signs of dermatomyositis are very distinctive. Can you talk us through these? Yes, of course. So dermatomyositis divided into two parts, right? The mato, which is skin, and the myositis. So we talk about the skin and the cutaneous manifestations. The most well-known associations are photosensitivity, particularly on the face, but with a really unusual predilection for the eyelids. So the upper eyelids in particular will become edematous, and then they will start to look kind of deep red, almost violaceous. And it's called a heliotrope rash. So my question to you, Annalise, do you know what a heliotrope is? No. What is it? It's actually a flower. It's a flower with a purple hue that uh, that's attracted to the sun or just faces the sun. So they call it a heliotrope. And it is very curious because with the metamarsitis, you get this purpley swollen eyelids. When you compare it to lupus, where the upper eyelids are usually not affected because they are photoprotected, it's because the metamarsitis causes muscle inflammation. And you have striated muscle present in the eyelids. And what you're actually seeing is eyelid inflammation. But because the skin over the eyelids is so thin, you can see the inflammation of the underlying muscle. So it's very peculiar. Okay. Then you have a type of photosensitivity on the upper back and the upper chest. It's almost as though someone has draped a shawl over you. Okay. Except the shawl is red and pigmented. And it's called the shawl sign. And then on the hands, you have a very characteristic appearance of bumps, red bumps over the metacarpal phalangeal joints, the interphalangeal joints of the hands, which are often very pruritic. And these are called Gottron's papules. The cuticles become inflamed. They can become uh, quite ragged and vessels can dilate and also drop out. So these are the most common cutaneous findings in the metamyositis. So certainly they're the most characteristic. Time for our first skin tip of the episode. The cutaneous manifestations of dermatomyositis can be pathognomonic and include Gottron's papules, the heliotrope rash, and the shawl sign. Alvin, are there any other cutaneous signs that are less well known? 
Yes. So you can have something called Gautran's sign that's different from Gautran's papus. And they're violaceous papus over the elbows and knees, and they can look almost seraziform. Patients can often have Raynaud's, uh, digital ischemia, calcinosis cutis, and a holster sign, which is a kind of a purplish um, edematous discoloration over their hips. But there, there are actually a lot of different non-specific signs in the metamyositis, including alopecia, the, the most characteristic ones I've already spoken about. We've already spoken about muscle biopsy, but is skin biopsy helpful in confirming the diagnosis? I think data is good, so, but I, I find that you need a clinical pathological correlation. The, the biopsy findings in the metamyositis are not exactly specific. You get an inflammatory lichenoid infiltrate and sometimes the presence of mucin, but it's not as useful as a muscle biopsy. Now, Mandy, I have a question for you. What are the more serious clinical manifestations that are life-threatening in the metamyositis? There's a spectrum of severity from mild to more severe cases. Aside from the muscle weakness that significantly impacts function and quality of life, serious organ complications of dermatomyositis include risk of pneumonia due to bulgar muscle weakness and aspiration, respiratory compromise due to chest wall weakness and interstitial lung disease, and heart involvement in the form of myocarditis can cause heart failure. Then there are the treatment-related side effects, including infection related to immunosuppression. I think it's time for another skin tip. As the name suggests, dermatomyositis has both cutaneous manifestations and inflammation of the muscles. Myositis does not manifest as arthralgia or muscle aches, but rather as muscle weakness. Dermatomyositis, with its muscle weakness and cutaneous manifestations, are bad enough on their own. But there is something else we worry about, isn't there, Mandy? Yes, Blake. Unfortunately, in 9-10% to of adults with dermatomyositis, there is an underlying malignancy, meaning that in these cases, dermatomyositis is a paraneoplastic condition. When you diagnose dermatomyositis in an older patient, do you go looking for an underlying malignancy? A suite of tests to exclude malignancy should be considered, including blood tumor markers, and that includes prostate-specific antigen in men, serum protein electrophoresis, mammography, cervical screening test, CT chest, abdomen, pelvis, a fecal occult blood test, colonoscopy, and in some cases, a bone scan may be indicated. Time for another skin tip. In older patients who have been diagnosed with dermatomyositis, it is important to investigate for underlying malignancy. There are an increasing number of autoantibodies which are now recognized as being associated with certain clinical manifestations and prognosis. Could you tell us a bit about these, Mandy? There are an increasing number of antibodies in myositis which have made it easier to diagnose idiopathic inflammatory myopathy. And it should be noted that some of these antibodies have distinct clinical associations and prognostic implications. For example, antisynthetase, including JO1 antibodies, are associated with interstitial lung disease, Raynaud phenomenon, arthritis, and mechanics hands. 
anti-MDA5 antibodies are associated with interstitial lung disease and rapidly progressive myositis. Anti-NXP2 is associated with juvenile or young-onset dermatomyositis. In adults, it may be associated with malignancy, as is anti-TIF1-gamma antibody. Even statin-induced myositis can be associated with anti-HMGCR antibodies. Uh, so Alvin, mechanics hands were mentioned there as being associated with antisynthetase uh, syndrome. What, what are mechanics hands? Okay, well, they refer to a peculiar skin manifestation of the metamyositis where the patient's hands become very inflamed and, and very lichenified. So it's erythematous, it's itchy, and they look like the hands of a mechanic as they're, they're all, you know, sore and inflamed. Uh, it looks like some kind of chronic hand dermatitis, but it isn't. It's actually a curious manifestation of the metamyositis that is associated with a JO1 antibody. Mandy, coming back to you, there's certainly a lot of autoantibodies we've discussed in considering dermatomyositis. As a GP, if I'm concerned about this, what test should I order before referring to you as a rheumatologist? Well, Annalise, muscle enzymes, in particular CK, as well as full blood count, liver function tests, electrolytes and renal function, and inflammatory markers, that is ESR and CRP, are a good start. Rheumatologists can request additional tests, including the antibodies we have talked about. So dermatomyositis we talked about, is, it's quite a rare condition. How do you sort of approach the treatment? Most patients are initially treated with steroids in conjunction with steroid-sparing immunosuppressants, such as methotrexate, mycophenolate, azathioprine, and rituximab, which are continued as steroids are tapered. Intravenous immunoglobulin can speed up the improvement, especially when there's profound weakness or dysphagia. General supportive measures, including physiotherapy, are also very important. Idiopathic inflammatory myopathies, including dermatomyositis, are notorious for relapsing or being recalcitrant in a subset of patients. More severely affected patients will need multidisciplinary management, often involving respiratory physicians, and some may even require intensive care. It certainly sounds as though the treatment can be quite complex. Can you tell us about a patient with dermatomyositis that you've looked after? My patient, who is a young woman aged 24, was referred by her GP to a dermatologist because she had developed a rash on her eyelids and knuckles. The dermatologist obtained the history of progressive muscle weakness, and by the time I saw the patient, she had severe proximal muscle weakness. On testing, she had NXP2 antibodies, and a muscle biopsy confirmed dermatomyositis. A CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis revealed no interstitial lung disease or malignancy, and her bloods were otherwise normal. She responded well to treatment with steroids and intravenous immunoglobulin. I added methotrexate as a steroid-sparing agent 
And this has enabled me to taper and stop steroids completely over several months. She is currently doing quite well. The final connective tissue disease we'll be discussing today is systemic sclerosis. Are systemic sclerosis and scleroderma the same thing, Mandy, or is there a preferred term? While systemic sclerosis and scleroderma are often used interchangeably, scleroderma really refers to the skin changes of the condition and the term systemic sclerosis is more correct as this is a systemic connective tissue disease with the potential to involve internal organs. Again, Mandy, could you start us off with just a general overview of what systemic sclerosis actually is? Systemic sclerosis is a multi-organ autoimmune disease that's characterized by the pathogenic triad of fibrosis, vasculopathy, and inflammation. Systemic sclerosis affects the skin with thickening and fibrosis, including in some cases the subcutaneous tissues leading to joint contractures. There can be involvement of the peripheral blood vessels with Raynaud's phenomenon and fingertip ulcers. Internal organ involvement can take the form of interstitial lung disease, pulmonary arterial hypertension, and gut involvement, including gastroesophageal reflux, gastroparesis, and intestinal pseudo-obstruction. Mandy, who gets systemic sclerosis and why does this happen? The average age of onset of systemic sclerosis is in the 50s with the preponderance of females. We don't know exactly why systemic sclerosis occurs, but there are some environmental exposures that have been proven to be associated, including exposure to crystalline silica in the course of engineered stonework. How do we classify systemic sclerosis? Systemic sclerosis is classified based on the extent of skin involvement, that is the extent of scleroderma. In limited systemic sclerosis, there's involvement of skin only distal to elbows and knees, including the face and neck. In diffuse systemic sclerosis, there is involvement of skin proximal to elbows and knees, again, including face, but also chest wall and abdomen. Now, this distinction is important as certain features occur more commonly in limited versus diffuse systemic sclerosis. For example, in limited systemic sclerosis, there is more telangiectasia and calcinosis, whereas in diffuse systemic sclerosis, there is more severe skin involvement, resulting in joint contractures and a higher risk of lung fibrosis and renal crisis. The distinction between limited and diffuse systemic sclerosis therefore has prognostic significance with more complications and reduced survival in diffuse compared with limited subtype. I think it's time for a skin tip. Systemic sclerosis is classified according to the extent of skin involvement. The distinction is important as patients with diffuse systemic sclerosis have more severe disease than those with limited. Mandy, some of my patients seem to really struggle in winter. What happens to these patients in cooler weather? 
Winter can be a very difficult time for patients with systemic sclerosis whose Raynaud phenomenon can worsen and result in fingertip ulcers. Many of these patients actually flee north to Queensland for warmth and sunshine during the Melbourne winter, although most of my patients haven't been able to travel interstate over the last couple of years due to COVID-related border closures. We often arrange short elective admissions for iloprost infusions in those people who are really struggling with their Raynaud's over winter. And for those where calcium channel blockers and drugs like sildenafil haven't been effective or tolerated, fingertip ulcers are extremely painful, often needing strong analgesics, and they can become infected requiring oral or intravenous antibiotics. Can you describe a patient who you've looked after that has systemic sclerosis? What symptoms and complications did they experience? My 55-year-old patient presented with six months of rapidly progressive skin thickening and finger joint contractures associated with pain. She was struggling to sleep due to itchy skin and joint pain. She had moderately severe reflux symptoms and mild Raynaud phenomenon. By the time I saw her, she had diffuse skin changes with early elbow joint contractures. She had bibasal lung crackles and normal blood pressure. Her initial investigations included autoantibodies as well as lung function tests, high-resolution CT lung, and an echocardiogram to look for interstitial lung disease and pulmonary arterial hypertension. Her initial treatment comprised peripheral vasodilators, PPI for reflux, and mycophenolate mofetil. I referred her to a dermatologist to optimize management of her skin changes. She required a lot of support to deal with physical disfigurement and inability to work due to a condition that none of her friends or family had previously heard of. Very tough disease to, to live with. Alvin, can you explore in more detail the cutaneous manifestations of systemic sclerosis? Yes, I will. I, th I tend to divide them into issues of disordered fibrosis or, or vascular issues. So for disordered fibrosis, we get scleroderma, which for some reason always seems to start distally. Sometimes there is an initial edematous phase where the swelling of the skin over the digits and then over time, the skin gets tight and then it starts getting bound down. And then the patients gradually lose the ability to fully flex and extend their fingers. So that's how scleroderma starts. And as Mandy has pointed out, it can be limited to just below the elbows or it can extend all the way up onto the limbs and the trunk. And if that happens, it becomes very debilitating because it gives you a flex, like fixed flexure deformity. On the face, it's interesting. The skin gets bound down and they find that they might not be able to open their mouths wide. They call it microstomia. The noses start to become quite beaky in appearance. There's a lot of itch and also a lot of pigmentary change. So often patients with scleroderma have a very characteristic facial look. And they've got you know small mouths, kind of like smooth, shiny skin and a beaky nose. And then they also 
and get vascular lesions, um, so mad-like telangiectasia. But the big, big problem alluded to these are the vascular issues, particularly around hands. Patients get Raynaud's phenomenon that can become really severe. And when that happens, you end up with digital uh, ulceration due to ischemia. Patients sometimes get calcineosis cutis. And one of the characteristics is a uh, um, capillary dropout in the proximal nail folds. Alvin, you've mentioned capillary dropout a couple of times. Can you just clarify what that means? Okay, so uh, the proximal nail fold is an interesting part of your finger. Okay, so if you have a look at it, most people with normal capillary nail folds have a certain pink blush to it. And when you put your microscope on it or the matoscope, you can see uh, blood vessels. In systemic sclerosis, you have destruction of the blood vessels. So you end up with much, much fewer blood vessels there. And so that's called capillary dropout. That's very interesting. Mandy, do we know of any autoantibodies that are associated with systemic sclerosis? There are three main scleroderma-associated antibodies. The first of these is centromere pattern anti-nuclear antibody, which is typically associated with limited systemic sclerosis. Anti-SCL70, also named anti-topoisomerase, is typically associated with diffuse systemic sclerosis and interstitial lung disease. Anti-RNA polymerase 3 antibody is typically associated with diffuse systemic sclerosis and renal crisis. It is interesting to note that these three antibodies are generally mutually exclusive, so it's rare to have more than one of these, and some patients have none of these antibodies and are ANA negative. Mandy, how do you investigate a patient with systemic sclerosis? I start with the basics, so that's full blood count, renal function, liver function, inflammatory markers, and the autoantibodies we just talked about. Lung function tests and an echocardiogram yearly to screen for interstitial lung disease and pulmonary arterial hypertension are now standard practice. A high-resolution CT chest is used to diagnose interstitial lung disease. Some patients also need gastrointestinal investigations based on the type of gastrointestinal symptoms they're experiencing. It's time for another skin tip. Like the other connective tissue diseases, systemic sclerosis has several important systemic manifestations, including interstitial lung disease, pulmonary arterial hypertension, scleroderma renal crisis, and gastroesophageal reflux disease. So Mandy, I have a lot of difficulty with managing patients with systemic sclerosis, particularly the renals and the finger ulcers. Can you kind of run through how you manage a patient with systemic sclerosis? Well, Alvin, management of renals and finger ulcers centers on keeping warm. Use of calcium channel blockers such as nifedipine or philodipine, sildenafil, aloprost infusions, dressings, analgesics, and antibiotics for infected ulcers. We frequently use microphenolate for management of skin changes and interstitial lung disease, although 
The evidence base for this is weak. We often use hydroxychloroquine and methotrexate for management of arthritis in scleroderma. Screening for pulmonary arterial hypertension entails annual echocardiography and lung function testing. And this is important as there are now several treatment options available for pulmonary arterial hypertension in systemic sclerosis. And these have considerably increased survival in this previously fatal complication. Regular blood pressure monitoring and renal function tests in those at risk of renal crisis, in particular, those with anti-RNA polymerase three antibodies is important. For those that develop renal crisis, ACE inhibitors are vitally important. Supportive care to deal with the consequences of disease on appearance, physical function, employment, and quality of life is paramount. Are there any new promising treatment options for systemic sclerosis? Several recent trials of targeted therapies for systemic sclerosis skin disease have failed to show benefit. But tocilizumab, which is an interleukin-6 blocker, may have a beneficial effect in improving lung function in systemic sclerosis interstitial lung disease. Nintednib, which is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, has been shown to improve lung function in systemic sclerosis interstitial lung disease, but isn't currently available in Australia for this indication. Autologous stem cell transplantation has been shown to lead to improved skin and interstitial lung disease outcomes compared with intravenous cyclophosphamide. However, this treatment carries a significant risk of cardiac mortality, and patients need to be carefully selected and undergo this treatment in a specialized center with experience in autologous stem cell transplantation. Well, that concludes our second episode on connective tissue diseases. We hope there were no connectivity issues during this episode on connective tissue diseases and that you've made a meaningful connection to the topic. Thank you, Mandy and Alvin, for your time and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. We would like to thank our producer and supervisor, Associate Professor Alvin Chong at the Skin Health Institute. We'd also like to thank the education team at Skin Health Institute and Balloon Tree Productions. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. For listeners who want more information on the subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. That's spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. The Skin Health Institute would like to thank our exclusive institute partner, Melbourne Pathology, for their support of the Spot Diagnosis podcast.